Welcome to the Fellow Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Lesperance. Listen in as I host humble discussions exploring the diverse expressions of Christian spirituality, tradition, and beyond. Enjoy, and safe traveling. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I'm here today uh, with Jen Lee, Reverend Jen Lee. Whatever he calls her, Jen. I call her Jen. Um, she's an old friend of mine. I've known her for almost 10 years now. Back in the day, we were involved with Campus Ambassadors College Ministry. And since then, we've kind of uh, weaved in and out of touch over time. And Jen's been um, part of, well, she kind of started this organization several years ago called on pilgrimage, which you can uh, you can talk about more, but um, that's kind of developed over time. Uh, but anyway, welcome, Jen. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me here, Pete. Excellent. I'm very glad to have you. <clears throat> I actually went and visited her church uh, a couple weeks ago, and it was a really really beautiful experience. Really cute little um, old church with a very welcoming um nice uh body of people and believers and uh really nice structured service that was just very cozy and warm and i definitely want to go back again someday but um Time. yeah very cool and if you're in the southbridge area or central mass area go check it out central baptist yep southbridge right right mostly online you can find us anywhere cbc southbridge yeah and i believe <clears throat> jen you have some like uh, videos or mini sermons that you've shared other places as well like on websites or whatnot i can i can drop links in the in the uh show notes but anyway without further ado why don't you um share with us a little bit of your spiritual heritage where do you find your roots in the christian faith what um what are some experiences, whether mystical or mundane, that have kept you there or have called you deeper into it, especially to the point of becoming, a, you know, a woman pastor, which is, you know, somewhat controversial in some circles, which is fascinating, but I love that. <laughs> um, welcome to the fellow traveler. Anyway, um, so yeah, share as much or as little as you want to. Go for it. Man. You, you might be <laughs> regretting saying as much as I have a lot. Um, so I just turned 50 this year. So I have a lot of life to like, <laughs> to, to share, I guess. Um, but yeah, my heritage starts, my heritage in the church, in the Christian faith, um, in relationship with God starts even before I was born. Um, 
both of my sets of grandparents came out of pretty robust Christian traditions and my parents met at Wheaton College. My mom's dad was a Baptist pastor and my dad became a Baptist pastor. Um, so I grew up in the church, I would say solidly evangelical, but not totally in the box. I, there are some things that were really like all the other evangelical churches you hear about, um, you know, youth group and mission trips and um, certain types of music. And we didn't, our church still, the church that I grew up in still is basically um, complementarian, which means they don't really believe in women pastors. Um, I still have relationships with that church though, like good ones. They, they maybe make a slight exception for me. I don't know. Um, but I don't have any real negative sense of that upbringing or bitterness or anything. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that God and specifically Jesus was very real to my parents and all four of my grandparents. Um, it wasn't like he was some imaginary person or somebody that we just gave the nod to on Sundays or um, it wasn't really so much about rules. I myself was kind of legalistic growing up because I think um, there's also levels of maturity involved in how you process faith. Um, and when you're much younger, a lot of times you find your security in boxes and parameters and stuff. And so, so I was kind of legalistic, but that isn't really in my memory how I feel like I was raised. Um, so Jesus was a living, still a, uh, a living resurrected God who was personal. Um, my dad taught me to read the Bible by um, writing down all my questions. A lot of times I hear people say church isn't a safe place for questions. That was not my experience in the church. My dad was my pastor and I could ask him anything. Um, and after a while I stopped asking him because I started, you know how, you know how sometimes they say the Bible is a love letter from God. And so I thought, well, if God wrote me this letter, I'm going to write back. And so I started writing my questions as if I were writing to God. Um, and so pretty much from my teens, um, reading the Bible has been more like a dialogue between me and God than some kind of like, this is a manual of how you're supposed to do things um, that you can't have any, any questions about or whatever. So that helped a lot. Also, um, my mom's mom grew up Lutheran. And so she brought a sense of liturgy and also celebration into the into our experience of faith that was a little bit broader than um, maybe some just straight evangelical practices. And my dad's mom, this is crazy. She was very reformed in her theology, but she was super interested in the Catholic mystics. Right. I don't know. <laughs> Somehow it worked for her. Um, and so she got me reading them as a young adult. 
I think they were a little bit beyond me at the time, but they made a big impression. And that too kind of helped me not be too boxed in. Um, in my, I went to college, to a Christian college, a fairly well-known Christian college. And when I graduated from there, I wanted to be a missionary. And so um, my parents had been missionaries starting out when I was really little. And so that just kind of seemed like the next thing. Um, so after paying off my loans, which I did by working as a live-in nanny and having no living expenses, um, I went to the UK and lived in London for five and a half years, working with refugees out of three local inner city churches. Um, that was also a very important experience because I had to learn to, um, well, I had to really consider when I worked with people of other faiths from these other countries, if I really thought that Jesus and the gospel as I understood it was good news for them because the implications of their converting were, could be pretty severe. And so I had to really wrestle with, do I take this seriously enough that I think it's worth my friend putting possibly her life on the line and at least her relationships on the line um, if she were to decide this was true also. Um, and for better or worse, I did decide that it was worth it. Um, but that was that was important, I think, for my own faith formation to kind of come to that realization or conclusion. Um, but also I had to wrestle with a different type of church tradition that I was not familiar with because the churches that I was placed with were charismatic. Um, that to me was the scariest version of Christianity that I had ever heard of. Um, it was way out of my comfort zone. Um, and the churches and I had to kind of wrestle back and forth with where I was in relation to where they were. And did they really think I was saved because I didn't speak in tongues? Um, I still don't speak in tongues, but I have had since then some pretty significant um, other types of what you might call charismatic experiences or mystical experiences. Um, cool. Yeah. That's a quick question. Yeah. So you went to Bible college. What college did you go to again? I went to Wheaton. <clears throat> Wheaton. Okay. Nice. Um, so what made you want to go to Bible college? Was there anything that really... Because, I mean, I feel like people don't just willy-nilly just decide, oh, I'm going to Bible college. I want to go into the vocations and the ministries, you know. What was it? Was there something that happened in your youth that really, um, I don't know, struck you or really grabbed you? Or was it just like, just felt called in some way, shape, or form? That's a good question. So I don't say this in any way bragging. Maybe there's a little bit of chagrin when I say this. Every school I've ever gone to has been a Christian-based school. <laughs> and sometimes that was intentional, and sometimes it was just kind of how it happened. Um, so I went to Christian school, private Christian school, growing up when I was younger. And that was 
challenging in the sense that this is where I got super legalistic. Um, I felt like the other kids in my Christian school didn't care about their faith as much as I did, which may or may not have been true. It was a little bit of an arrogant assumption, I guess. Um, but I was really serious about my faith even then. I had asked Jesus into my heart when I was four. And when I was six, I did it again because, um, you know, just to be sure. And <laughs> yeah, I think I did um, it once a week at our church because we had like an outreach thing that, in the inner city. Yeah. So I think once a week I was giving, letting Jesus into my heart. Fortunately, whoever led me, led me to Christ, quote unquote, the second time, um, when they found out I had already asked Jesus into my heart, they were very clear that you only have to do this once. And I actually believed them because I didn't, I didn't try to do it again. I did like, if they, if I was at a youth retreat and they did some other kind of walk forward or whatever, or stand up in your seat, or if it wasn't specifically giving your life to Christ, if it was some other thing, I would usually stand up or whatever. Um, but because I really did have the sense that Jesus was real. Um, I really did care about what God thought. I wanted to be pleasing to God. And um, when I got, when it came to college, I, I suspect, because I was super shy and I wasn't popular, um, and I actually did not succumb very much to peer pressure, because there was peer pressure even in Christian school, um, maybe different kinds, but yeah. But I... I probably was more secure in myself and in Christ than I realized, but I think that there was probably some fear about going to a secular college. Um, I didn't want to go to a specifically Bible college. Uh, Wheaton is a liberal arts, a Christian liberal arts college. And so um, I definitely wanted to do something more in the humanities than just a simple Bible college degree, but but I did, um, yeah, I I think I probably was a little bit afraid, but I also knew that I wanted, I knew pretty young that I wanted to go into missions. And so I figured, and my, par my parents had gone to Wheaton, all my grandparents had gone to Wheaton. I figured that would be the, um, that would be a great place to go. And that's yeah, they also all met their spouses there. That did not happen for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dang, that's that's interesting. Um, so, like, it seems like when you were younger, was just like the intellectual aspects of it, that the propositional aspects of it was just sufficient enough for you to to feel secure in your faith, or was there anything that happened in those times? Or was it just this general sense? Or maybe it's just like the osmosis of just being, you know, so rooted into a community like that, that it's not necessarily that had anything crazy had to happen, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, nothing just, I'm crazy just happened. I think that I, I think it was all of those things. I do think I had a real sense of God, like the presence of God, that God was there, um, that God heard me and... I don't know that I had a whole lot of a sense of that I could listen to God, but I have this year, I found a book of poetry that I wrote. Um, 
and I'm not really that great of a poet, but I was sort of pleasantly surprised and pleased at how my intentions toward God, even back then when I was writing those poems as like a late teen or young adult, um, was still very sincere and like there were other things that I wanted in my life, but I really, I really was serious about um, this, for lack of a better term, relationship with God. Like it, it was really relational, what I had with God. The intellectual aspect mattered to me too. I, my brain is an important part of who I am. Not that I'm the smartest person in the world, but like I live in my head a lot. Um, but yeah, I, God was real to me from really early on. I think that's really cool because it it just shows that it doesn't have to be nothing crazy has to happen to you. It doesn't have to be like this wild, like, wow, that happened to you. Like experience. Uh It can just be, you know, you can just faith can just arise. It doesn't have. And I think a lot of times there's this comparison game that people often play. Uh It's like, oh, wow, they had that kind of experience. I've never experienced something like that. Does that mean I'm not saved? Like, (laughs) Yeah, and I I wrestled with that a lot as a kid because I was a good kid. Like, I intentionally did not, I mean, I was kind of a brat sometimes, I think, but <laughs> I didn't intentionally rebel. I wanted to, you know, I wanted my parents to be happy with me. I wanted God to be happy with me. I just pretty much wanted everybody to like me, um, but also leave me alone. I'm, a, <laughs> I'm an introvert, so... Um, yeah, so I definitely would hear stories of these dramatic conversion experiences or changes of direction or whatever, and I'd be like, is this even a real thing? I don't know. But now I'm grateful for this story because for, for exactly the reason that you say, because not everybody has these road to Damascus experiences. Yeah, it makes you more relatable, for sure. And, and yeah, it just makes the Christian life more accessible too. <clears throat> and I think that's kind of an important, it's tough because I mean, you saw what charismatic circles are like. I don't know what yours was like, obviously a different experience than mine, but I was basically raised in it. So there, there was this pressure to have some sort of mystical experience with God and with oh. the Holy Spirit. There was this pressure to experience tongues or being slain in the spirit or something like that. Um, But, and you know, what's interesting, oftentimes now looking back, a lot of the stories I heard of these crazy like mystical experience where um, a lot of them, some of the the people that gave those stories now today may not even be Christians, which is Uh interesting. Um, There was, I don't know if you were familiar with the, um, the church of the end times I am aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't Very, say familiar, but I know about not it. Not familiar, but yeah, aware of it. I'm sure if you've driven on 146 in, in yeah. the Worcester <laughs> area, you've seen the signs. But obviously, like about 10 years ago, they were like um, exposed as like this big cult. But I remember their leaders coming to our church and actually sharing like these crazy stories about God, how God wanted them to go to like Jamaica or something and witness and do this and this, this and that. And then now you look back and it's like, oh man. It's kind of scary to think 
<laughs> now where they ended up. So I don't know. It's one of those, it's the delicate balance of experience and reason. It's the spirit and truth aspect, right? Like uh -huh. worshiping God in spirit and truth. In some circles, there's, there's a lot of spirit. In some circles, there's a lot of truth, no spirit. So it's like, I don't know. It's an interesting balance. Yeah. But as, I find it funny that you were, um, you were encouraged by your reformed <laughs> grandmother yeah. to read mystics. Yep. It's hilarious because when I was growing up, I was discouraged from, even though I grew up in a charismatic church, which is a lot about mystical experiences, I was discouraged from the mystics, probably specifically because they're, because they're Catholic. Yes. And I was discouraged from Catholicism, even though my father grew up in Catholicism, but he converted to Protestantism. Um, Sometimes um, so that like, makes it even more pronounced, the rejection <laughs> of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I remember like, I mean, when I think of like, I remember my, my brother starting to um, read like Thomas Aquinas or something like that. Oh. And it's not like Thomas Aquinas is anything that groundbreaking, like mystically. I mean, he's just yeah. giving all these propositional ideas about why you should believe in, in Jesus and the church. Like, <laughs> um, so I don't know. Um, so yeah, I just, I just remember there being some sort of like, um, I don't know being um discouraged from that sort of thing uh -huh. but anyway yeah go on so then you went off to england and what were your experiences in the charismatic churches well i didn't have a ton of actually what you might call charismatic experiences in those churches i think um I was going to say this a little bit earlier when you were just talking. Um, for me, I think it's been good that most of my faith was forged from the, well, I could say from a kind of contemplative space, which is like the quieter version of charismatic. So the intellect and the contemplative um, and then the charismatic experiences that I've had, the, the kind of more, they're not even showy, but the more dramatic experiences, I guess, that I've yeah, had. Bigger and louder and more experiences as a group rather than an individual and in isolation. Yeah, well, mine have not happened in a group, but <laughs> although I have a funny story of one that everybody thought was that kind of experience, but that's not what was going on. I don't know if we have time for that. I can share that at the end if if we have time. Um, most of my more dramatic experiences have happened in more recent decades, um, which for me is good because I'm the kind of person that I'm a little bit, well, maybe a lot contrarian. And so, for example, at the charismatic church, there I, I definitely had a lot of anxiety around this idea that well, I hadn't experienced the Holy Spirit like all these other people were saying. Did that mean I wasn't actually saved? Like there was that anxiety, but there was also the anxiety of, or the stubbornness of like, oh, we're having this prayer service right now and you're going to put your hands on me. And this is actually a guest church. This wasn't the church that I worked for. Um, they were leading a service in our church. You're going to put your hands on me and try to push me down on the ground. Well, that's not going to happen. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, um, so to some extent, I resisted some of those 
Um, but I did learn to really love, for example, um, smaller prayer circles where you would go around and pray for each person one by one um, and maybe get a word for them or a picture or something like that, that kind of thing um, was really helpful to me and moving. Um, I, I also learned, so the first spiritual directors that I ever met were on my team in London. And so I learned about things like Lectio Divina and um, imaginative Bible reading and those kinds of practices as well. But I also, I feel like this is an important part of my story for your podcast. Um, somewhere along the line between college and London, part of London, I became extremely complementarian, like way more than my upbringing ever was. And so when people from my church would say, Jen, um, we want you to lead a talk at church, or we want you to lead this Bible study. If there were going to be men there, I would refuse to do it because I really didn't believe, according to the Bible, that women should teach men um, or lead men at all. Even though, I mean, so in a lot of evangelical spaces, it's okay to, it's okay for white women to lead men of color if they're in another, if they're doing missions in another country. I understood that even back then to be racist. So I was just like, I, I can't lead any men. Um, wow. That, that is funny. Wow. That, that's kind of scary actually now thinking about that. Cause yeah, when you, when you're out in Africa or the South America, right? Your, your parents were in South America. They were in, yeah, they were in Central America. Central America. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure your mom preached to, she didn't. Oh, she didn't. She, did, okay. she led Bible studies, but I think she led women's Bible studies. Oh, okay. <clears throat> wow, fascinating. But she yeah, did. That is interesting. I mean, she taught Sunday school, adult Sunday school classes at the church I grew up in, and that church has had and still has women elders, and so it wasn't really that strongly complementarian. Um, I became just way like to the extreme on that just on your own just on my just own out of like i don't know fear of messing up or something or doing the wrong no thing it was it was out of i was really i felt really convinced that that's what the bible taught mm -hmm. yeah i mean just a cursory reading in english without any context it's pr pretty easy to make that conclusion for sure so do you want to hear how my mind changed on that? <laughs> yeah, uh, I was just going to say it's interesting, like in my experience in the charismatic circles in America, I that was never really an issue. We mm -hmm. had women preaching all the time. And maybe it's because of people like Joyce Myers, who kind of had that charismatic like word of faith. And then there was others. I forget her name, but there was another woman, too, who used to do a lot of faith healings and stuff like that. Well, some of the charismatic denominations were started by women. And actually, when God does 
a radical move of that type of his spirit, um, like the Azusa Street Revival. Yeah. The, it is always um, distinguished by diversity. Mm. Women and people of color and, you know, people on the margins get pulled into that movement. And so... Um, Interesting, because my my um my parents, well, the church that we went to in the '90s was Assemblies of God, which was started right, which was founded by the Azusa by, Mudin, uh, yes. Azuzu Street revival. Yes. Fascinating. So yeah, tell me your story. How did how did you change your mind, or how was your so, mind changed? First, I need to tell you about how I came back from London. So I thought I was going to move. I was going to stay in London forever. Um, I was getting ready to apply for dual citizenship and I I really liked it there I liked what I was doing but I came back to the U.S. for what they call home assignment which is where you go to the churches that pay for you to be wherever whatever country you're living in and um, give them an update on how the ministry is going and stuff and I I came back for that and I really it partly because of some conversations that I had with different supporters in different parts of the country, this country, um, people who didn't know each other, but also partly because I, um, I just had a lot of time to like either in planes by myself, traveling to all these different places or just by myself at home, um, processing stuff. I started feeling really, unsure about how I was doing what I was doing. Um, it felt kind of disingenuous to be in the UK working with refugees who had been, um, you know, for whatever reason, had to leave their home country and come to this other country where they were not always treated very well and they didn't have a whole lot. And I would sit in their homes and I would eat their food and while Americans were paying for me to live there and I would tell them about Jesus, but I couldn't tell them that that's why I was there. And so I had to say I was an English teacher, but really I only spent like four hours a week doing anything related to teaching English. And it just felt really sketchy. So, um, so I really started wrestling about whether I should go back or not. And I was like, if maybe I should just get a, a worker's visa and see if I can get a job in London, but I, like a regular job, but I don't know how to do anything because, um, because I got a degree in English literature and worked as a nanny. And now I'm just telling people about Jesus. I don't know. Um, but I was getting ready to go back and I had my first panic attack. Um, three days before I was supposed to fly back. And I was just like, I can't go back. I can't go back. I can't go back, which was bizarre because I wanted to live there. <laughs> so, um, so I ended up deciding I would go back for six months, take six months to decide about whether I was going to stay there or not. And, but I think I had already kind of decided anyway, I came back to the U S but I had never actually wanted to live here. I am not the most patriotic person that you will ever meet. Sorry. I, 
I don't hate this country. I'm just not. Like, I'm just. That's just me. Um, you have an American flag behind you, like me? I see. I see. Yes, I see. You have one, and there's one at our church. Um, that's a whole other. Story. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that I, that I have nothing to do with. Um, it's all good. Anyway, I didn't want to live here, and so I thought. I just got kind of bad at God because I thought you let me go to this country that I'd always wanted to live in and you let me do the mission thing, but it doesn't seem to have made a difference in anybody's life. And it didn't really pay pay out, wow, pan out the way I was hoping. And I don't really know what I'm doing there. And I definitely don't know what I'm doing in this country. So, but I felt like God told me to, because it felt like all the doors closed there even though they actually didn't, (laughs) it felt like they did. And that God told me to come back here. And then kind of that God dropped me, Um, which was super disillusioning because I felt like I had dedicated my whole life to God. And I knew intellectually that, you know, God doesn't owe me anything. But emotionally, I felt like I was turning 30 that year. And I had gone on five dates with different people in my life. And I wanted to be married. And I had wanted to do missions. And now I wasn't that. I had no job experience. I didn't know where I was going to (laughs) live. And so I kind of floundered around depending on how you look at it from three to 10 years. Um, I didn't stop believing in God, but I was really mad at him for like three, three of those 10 years. Um, And eventually there, but here's the crazy thing. So I went to, I went to grad school for two semesters to try to get a degree in counseling, but I was having horrific reverse culture shock which is when you can't readjust to your home culture <laughs> from the other one that you were living in um That's interesting uh it's it was brutal so i was having that and um the degree was just not a good fit for you me maybe hold down the mcdonald's what's that you couldn't hold down the mcdonald's what do you mean their oh. the culture shock yeah <laughs> well kind of yeah because i used to actually that's true because in the uk you may or may not know about mad cow disease i didn't eat a whole lot of beef at all and then i moved to grad school in denver and there it was just like beef all the time now i really like beef but um even that was like what is happening and I, also everything was huge like everything here is so big but especially more not so much in new england definitely in more western states anyway um so yeah the the degree was not a good fit i don't know if it was their program in particular or if it was just where i was at headspace wise i really though liked because denver seminary it's a christian institution um so i had to take some bible classes and i loved the bible classes 
But I was like, I already have a degree, a bachelor's degree that I spent money on that I'm doing nothing with. And I don't believe that I can preach or teach this stuff. So why would I spend more money to get a degree to get like a, a master's of divinity or something like that? That's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. So I came back to Massachusetts and worked at Starbucks. And at Starbucks, I spent all my time trying to convince my coworkers about Jesus. And then I went home one day after having this very heated debate with one of my coworkers who we would just, who was also very smart. And so we would have these battle of wits, <laughs> apologetic battles of wits. Um, and I went home and I was like, why? Am I trying so hard? I don't even want to believe this anymore. And then I felt like God, I don't hear voices, but I it felt like God said, because I got you. And for somebody who felt like God had dropped them for three years, that was super comforting. I feel like for some people that wouldn't help because they would just feel trapped. But for me, it was like, oh, I'm... I'm, I'm held, you know, he didn't actually let go, even though it felt like it. So my relationship with God started to improve from there. Um, Seems like one of those wilderness experiences, right? Like, totally. Yeah. I don't know if it's like, is this, is that the phrase for it? Cause I think everybody's gone through this like dry period where they just feel like they're out in the desert. Right. And uh -huh. there's no oasis to be found. Uh -huh. Yeah. And you even it's there's almost like in this fractal sense, like this this archetype of, you know, you have Israel walking through the desert for 40 years, not making it to the promised land. It's not like God didn't care about them or didn't have a plan for them. He just he had them stuck there for a, a moment. Mm -hmm. And I think like everybody goes through that kind of experience, which is it's nice that you share because maybe that's just the kind of thing that someone needs to hear. Like you know um it's not all just like I, I think what's fascinating too i was listening to nt wright once talk about he wrote this book about the life of paul did you know mm -hmm. that paul spent 10 took 10 years off from mm -hmm. ministry isn't mm -hmm. that wild <laughs> he took 10 years off from preaching the gospel what was he doing he was probably just taking a sabbatical he's like i've been going too hard for too long <laughs> <He> <laughs> Like, that's crazy. We don't even know what he did for 10 years. He probably yeah. just chilled somewhere, you know, and, and he was probably having similar experience. Like, what is, what yeah. is the purpose of all my work that I'm doing here? Like, probably mm -hmm. a similar experience. We don't know. We'll right. Know. Yeah. But, Actually, but I so think, yeah. that, that experience is a lot why I founded the pilgrimage. Actually, it came out of that, um, which we can talk about more later. I, I even teach a class on that um called the walk it's on stages of faith and we spend like two weeks two of the eight weeks <laughs> talking about that kind of um that kind of experience because it is super important in the life of faith but also super confusing so. yeah i definitely can concur i i think of like a time when it was like between high school and college, I had that kind of experience where I was like, what the heck am I doing? Where is God? Where am I supposed to be? Like, 
-hmm. And then like when I, when, uh, you know, I got more involved with campus ambassadors that really, it gave me like this kind of foundation to stand upon mm. and get connected with the community of believers again. And I think it's like a lot that has to do with it too, is just get connected. You know, a lot of, a lot of people, they sit there and they wallow and worry, you know, I just don't fit in here. I just, you know, I just haven't been to church in three years or it's like, just, it's cause you're not showing up, you know, <laughs> you're not yeah. showing up. It is tough. I mean, maybe. It's tough. <laughs> I don't feel like I fit in, but I just keep showing up. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like maybe you don't fit in, but just keep showing up. I, I try to encourage people to show up. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's important. I mean, but anyway, the next step is me becoming aware that women can lead in things Christian. Um, so I don't know how long it was after that epiphany that God had not abandoned me, but I was living in a different place, um, but it might've not been that, that big of a time span. Um, I was sitting in my bedroom, which actually was this room. <laughs> this used to be my parents' house. We bought it in 2018. Um, and I was reading a book, and I don't think it had anything to do with any of this. All of a sudden, again, I don't hear words, but I do sometimes feel like God is saying something into my brain. Um, and I, at this point, I can tell if it's my thought or God's thought. <laughs> like, um, and said, stop hiding behind three passages of the Bible you don't understand and start paying to the ones that you uh, paying attention to the ones that you can. And I was like, um, okay, were were we talking about this? <laughs> like I knew exactly what this was about. Um but I hadn't, I, I was content not leading things, I thought. And um, yeah, but I had turned down opportunities in the UK and I had turned down a Bible degree at Denver Seminary. And I feel like God was like, okay, I'll, I'll give you those two, but you, now, it's, now it's time for you to um, get your mind straight on this. And so, and then my next thought immediately was of the women at the tomb, especially Mary Magdalene. And I was like, oh, they really actually were the first people to share the gospel with the full gospel um, post-resurrection with men. <laughs> they shared it with men. <laughs> so, okay. right, But it wasn't in a church. Yeah. It wasn't inside of a building though. Oh my gosh. Oh, well, it was if they were in the upper room when they shared it. <laughs> yeah. You're going to split hairs. All the hairs that you have to split to make complementarianism work. So this is the crazy thing. I used to think it was the other way around. I used to think you have to do all kinds of mental gymnastics to allow women to have a voice in the church. Now I think you have to do a way more, way more to twist around the entire testimony of scripture. If you read all of scripture through the lens of 
Timothy and Ephesians and whatever, then you have to do a whole lot of rewriting. But if you read yeah. those passages through the lens of the rest of scripture, um, I think you can get a better handle on what those passages are trying to say. So anyway, I didn't have a full understanding of those passages and I still don't necessarily. You know, although I've You know what I was actually thinking about last night was, so if a woman declares the gospel in front of a group of mixed group of people, is God going to, on judgment day, going to be like, go to hell because you're a woman and you preach the gospel. Right. <laughs> no. right. Does, just put it that way. Does it make any sense at all? No sense at all. No. <laughs> now, what if, what if through that woman, some, some people came to faith? You mean does like God the did, woman at the well? Yeah. Like does there, does there, does there, uh, is their faith illegitimate? Like it just, it falls apart when you really just put some basic logic to it. But anyway, it really does. I digress. It really does. Yeah. So at that point I was like, I still don't know what to do with those passages, but God knows that I don't understand them. And I guess isn't ready to explain them to me. So, but I can start looking at the rest of scripture and what, and what I can see in it. And <clears throat> Um, and so I was like, well, great. I guess women can be pastors. I'm convinced, but I also don't feel like I need to be one. Um, then I got a job at a church up in Worcester. So this is my, so I have my evangelical upbringing and my mystical reformed grandmother and my charismatic churches in London. And now I get into the mainline moving progressive church so i was there for seven years it's quite um, the mixed bag yeah i actually feel like it's it's riches like i'm really grateful for all of these different formative and decently long-term experiences and all these different streams of christianity because I think it just gives me a a broader perspective of God and the church and what God wants to do in the world and also the the shortcomings and the um the good things about the church. So anyway, so I was there for um for 7 years and I started seminary again and I decided to get an MDiv. I didn't know if I was going to be a pastor, but it seemed okay. And the church, at least, so the church changed pastors four times in the seven years I was there. Um, the pastor that was there when I started, when I resumed seminary, <laughs> was very supportive of that. And he recommended that the church um, offset some of my course costs, which was super great. Um, I went to Gordon Conwell for as many online classes as I could take. And then I met my now husband um, and I had run out of classes I could take online. And so I had to decide, am I going to move to the North Shore, quit my job? Cause there's no way I'm commuting to Worcester from the North Shore all the time. <laughs> um, 
and try to find some other job up there or am I going to I actually looked at Princeton didn't get in so that <laughs> that eliminated that decision right there um that would have been the one like I mean they they were founded as a Christian organization too but that would have been the one like most distant from <laughs> going to a Christian organization but anyway it didn't work out um so I decided to quit seminary again and pursue this relationship with Paul and we got married and then a year later I decided to not waste the two blocks of seminary credits that I already had and get a master's of arts and theology um, at Bethel Seminary of the East. So um, so I did that while I was finishing, while I was working at the church in Worcester, uh, right around the time I graduated, finally, that church leadership and I had some difficulties. Um, and so I was encouraged to leave <laughs> and I did, um, and it was that summer that the pieces of the pilgrimage started to fall into place. I also started to train as a spiritual director and as a chaplain that summer. Um, so I was broke and jobless, but <laughs> but I got some extra training. I got my degree and I got some extra training under my belt. Um, both of things have helped me do what I'm doing now. Nice. Can you give a brief description of what spiritual direction is? Yeah. So on the surface, it's kind of like going to therapy, but the focus is more your spiritual health than your mental health. Obviously there's overlap in those two things. Um, but I am not trained as a, I have some counseling courses under my belt, but I'm not trained as a therapist. I'm not licensed as a therapist, but I am certified as a spiritual, spiritual director. Um, I, the the philosophy, at least as I have been taught it and as I practice it, is that there are three people in the quote-unquote room. I do spiritual direction online, so room is loosely termed. Um, and the three people are the director, that's me, um, the directee, that's the client, and God, who is actually the director. My job is really to facilitate the interaction between um, the directee and God. This is a great resource for anybody who is pursuing a deeper relationship with God, whether you are secure in it, whether you know that you hear from God, or whether you're not sure that you can. Um, I think if you're a person that feels like you hear from God, having a another party in the room listening to the interaction helps um helps focus and bring some clarity and if you don't feel like you've ever heard from god before you might discover that with in the presence of another person um, it can help remove some of the barriers that maybe you've experienced to hearing from god before um, so it sounds more 
mystical than it is. And sometimes it kind of feels a little bit that way too, because sometimes I'll say, thanks for sharing all of that. Let's sit with that for a minute and see what God has to say about it. And then we just sit there (laughs) and don't say anything for a while. And some people find that weird, but most people I think find it really comforting. I also have a spiritual director. Um, I went for about six months in 2020 without one. And I realized that I was not functioning well. Um, My story and my things that I was wrestling with were starting to spill over into other people's stories and I wasn't able to give good care or um, be a good colleague. And so Mm. I won't ever do that again. (laughs) Like if something happens with my current spiritual director, I will find another one. Um, It's a lifesaver for me. I know I'd really like, I feel like I'm at this point in my life where I don't know, I've always feel called to something in the ministry or I don't know, some way, shape or form. And maybe that's what this fellowship, traveler is to some some degree i think it's a part of it i i also think a big part of what i'm called to do is music and it yeah. doesn't necessarily look like uh contemporary christian music ministry or anything uh-huh. like that but just uh-huh. you know the music i write is just is very contemplative but it's funny because i the tradition i grew up in and maybe has more to do with my parents but um i was also that whole concept of spiritual direction spiritual formation was also discouraged because of its ties to mysticism Mm -hmm. which is just very fascinating but now when i I mean as as i get older i'm like this is a invaluable resource Mm -hmm. to the Mm -hmm. church and to people i mean i feel like it's essentially a form of discipleship wouldn't you say yes yeah it fits in that category i feel like There is a difference, but I don't feel like it's a difference that God intended. I think in our culture, the way what we call discipleship has played out is kind of more top down, like this is what you are supposed to do, teaching information, where spiritual formation and spiritual direction are more, um, let's help you become the person that God made you to be. And I think both pieces are important, um, but they have kind of been separated in the church and how we do things. Um, so, yeah. Can I ask a, a related question um, in terms of like, and I was ha- thinking about this because of my discussion, my last discussion, uh, we were talking about the concept of the great commission and discipleship. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious, like, what are your thoughts? What What is discipleship in regards to the Great Commission? What does that look like? And what does it not look like, I guess, would be a curious thing. Whoa, that's a big question you should have warned me about ahead of time. <laughs> I mean, you can you can give whatever answer you think. Well, I, mean, I, don't, I guess I mean, just start I, with what it is, you know, start with, guess, the, what is it, the cataphatic? Start with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, wow. Okay. Do I have to explain what those words are? Have you talked about those before? I've mentioned them before and you can look them up if you want to, but I've, I've talked, I've talked about that a little bit with, um, Andrew Jarmus, the, okay. and we, we talked about it a little bit when, in our discussion, we had, a, I hosted a atheist, uh, Christian dialogue and we talked a little bit. Oh, about cool. Yeah. So, I mean, you don't have to describe what that is. Just tell us what, 
what is discipleship? I mean, I think it would be nice clarification of thought. Why not? (laughs) You're a reverend. (laughs) I was not. So this is tricky because I... I just feel like the way that it's done here, it, I, yeah, I'm not ready for this question. I haven't, cause I've been like mulling it over kind of, but not particularly intentionally. I mean, you don't, you don't even have to give a gen late explanation or you, you can just give like, what's a textbook? I don't know. <laughs> You're not sure. <laughs> well, I guess I really caught you off guard. Wow. You okay. did. I, That's okay. I mean, what are you, are you asking, are we supposed to try to convert people? What are you, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, the Great Commission is to go to all nations and make disciples. Make disciples, okay. I think, I think it obviously is more than just get people to ascend to some propositional point, intellectual yes. points. There's something deeper, right? Yes. I think, I think yes. it has something to do, and, and the verbs too are also in that, um, progressive present progressive tense or uh-huh. i think i when i was talking to andrew jarmus he mentioned this there's a tense in the greek that's eris it's oh, atemporal eris. yeah i don't know if that, that's what these this passage is in but but it's that there is this ongoing it's like while you're while you're going about your yes. day okay. make disciples you know what i mean that's helpful um, i've taken greek one and two twice but i actually maybe three times but i haven't retained any of that info i'm a big language guy so because i speak spanish too and and i work with language as a speech therapist as well so oh yeah i'm always thinking about language um right so i guess i'm thinking about you know i i guess let's start with the apophatic i think what it's not is just getting people to ascend to some intellectual propositions yes and then leaving them you know what I, I suspect what Jesus meant by that was I mean the disciples that he's talking to that he's commissioning have been following him for three years. Good point. <laughs> and learning from him not just through his teaching, but more through being with him. And so I kind of think that that's what he's saying. Make some more people like you, like you've been formed. He's sort of saying you've been formed to be like me. So now you find more people and do with them what I've done with you and um, baptize them in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit. Like these are, this is who you are. Um, You're making a community of people of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit people. And that's not just making converts, unless conversion means what it really means, which is a complete overhaul, um, a complete change of state, actually. Yeah, because usually so, when we're talking about converts or conversion, we're talking about that imp- that abstract like yeah. ascending to some intellectual proposition uh-huh. like oh jesus is lord okay la-di-da i'm gonna go keep on sinning my life's not gonna right. change like what's the difference you know right. or jesus uh, is lord and i'm gonna hunker down in my bunker and wait until he until comes he comes back and, back and like pulls me out <laughs> takes me yeah. back into the clouds right because <clears throat> this because this evil flesh that i'm in just 
Right. I need to escape it. Yeah. Actually, yeah. the book that I'm working on that I'm trying to find a find representation for is about Peter, the disciple slash nice. apostle, um, and how his being, the closer he gets to Jesus, the more he becomes himself. Um, mm, I like that. And so I think, and I actually, so <laughs> the book came out of, this is going to sound super boring, but fortunately most people have not found it this to be this. Um, I have some beta readers and some endorsers who can verify, but it came from a sermon series that I preached when I first, the first year that I was pastoring Central Baptist and um, it's, and I use it in that class I was just talking about the walk where we talk about stages of faith, because you can really see them in Peter's story. You can watch how becoming being Simon and being transformed into Peter, how, what that mm. transition and transformation looks like. Um, and I think that that is what ultimately what discipleship is supposed to be. We get closer yeah. to Jesus and mm -hmm. therefore closer to who we really are. And I think it's really beautiful in Peter's story, how gracious Jesus is through the whole uh -huh. process. Cause he messes up a lot. Yeah. He? Peter, put yep. down your sword. <laughs> Stop. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good, see, Jen, I don't, I think you doubted yourself. I don't, I don't think, I don't think you don't know what the size. I don't think I knew what you were in. asking actually. <laughs> okay. Maybe it wasn't, I guess, you know, I'm just thinking about it. Cause you know, I guess there is this aspect to the great commission where oftentimes there's almost this, it was almost used as a justification for imperialism and colonialism, right? Mm -hmm. Oh um, yeah. And con conquest. Not almost. And it has been used that way. <laughs> yeah. No, it, okay. Yeah. I guess we can for sure say that there's definitely this aspect to it where, I mean, when you look at the Roman Catholic church in the 1600s conquesting the Latin America, uh -huh. the Americas and the islands, uh -huh. it was like, Oh, well, we're going to use the power of the state and military force to spread the gospel, <laughs> which is exactly the opposite of what this is. You, you messed up on the yeah. assignment. You did not read the assignment, yeah. right? Oh, it completely. Yeah. And I mean, that's been going on mm -hmm. since really, really early. In yeah. Yeah, you're right. So then, but what's really interesting about the Great Commission, and, you know, I'm not a Bible scholar by any means, but I think I've absorbed enough to say, like, there is that aspect of the verbiage, the verb tense in, in the Great Commission is, is not go out from where you are. It means like, as you're going about wherever you are, make disciples. It's not yeah. saying I mean, he does say, so in, in <clears throat> Acts, Luke kind of expands on what Matthew records and says, you know, starting in Jerusalem, going to Samaria, Samaria and Damascus and mm -hmm. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, um, so I guess it's not it's not and or or and but or I don't know how you say it. It's not the exclusive. Right. Not mutually exclusive. There there are people who are called to go out for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. But I think the majority of us are just called to be wherever we are. I don't I think the majority of us aren't called to leave necessarily where we're at. And it's not exclusive, but yeah. I would also say, though, that I think God can use um, 
very flawed human systems and very flawed uh, human choices and very flawed humans <laughs> to accomplish what he intends in the world. So, um, I mean, I grew up on missionary stories and I think probably some of them would bother even me at this point if I were to reread them and be like I'd be like wow that seems a little imperialistic but real sometimes real this life lives were saved um, by those Christians and sometimes eternal lives were saved and and so here's an example <laughs> of when I had a little bit more of a propositional idea of what making disciples were when I was working at Starbucks and I was mad at God, but I was still trying to convince people to, to uh, get to know Jesus because he was so great, even though I was completely pissed off at him. Um, <laughs> I So the same guy that I was arguing with that day where I had that interaction with God and I realized God hadn't let me down, um, he... He went off and he went to, a, he was transferred to a different Starbucks and he got married and I was working at this church and we lost touch completely, totally, completely for 15 years in 2021, maybe, or the end of 2020. I got this random email from him saying, Jen, I just want you to know that I'm in the process of accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior. <laughs> he said, I don't remember anything you said, but you were the one person that cared the most about my spiritual state. And so I just wanted to tell you. Um, and he's had an actual encounter with God, and it's not just propositional for him either. So I know that like, on any kind of rational level, I was not what you would call a good witness. <laughs> I don't think. I wasn't really even that good at like the logical art of apologetics. Um, but I'd used it anyway because God was still there in that interaction. Um, and God still cared about that person and God still cared about me. And I feel like it's a gift that I got to find out that piece of that person's story. Because um, mm. I wouldn't necessarily know. This is a recurring theme in my discussions is God making good out of bad. Huh? I mean, obviously it's there through all throughout the scriptures as well, but it's, it's kind of funny how the pattern seeps out of is, I mean, is not exhaustively found in scripture, but it's, it's a pattern that we recognize even in the lived experience. Yeah. And I keep using this analogy of God playing like 40 chess over <laughs> our mistakes. Like he's up there, like being the puppet master, not, not in like this hyper Calvinist sovereign way, but yeah. I don't know. And I don't know how it works. As If you can tell me a, a, a clear and understandable understand a way to understand the interaction of man's will and God's will, I'll give you a million dollars, but um oh, really? <laughs> that i can actually I, believe i might be able to <laughs> oh really okay well anyway um so yeah i mean god 
he he's working you know he's uh-huh. he's working with what he has to i mean i don't think he's ever come across perfect humans so whoever he has worked <laughs> with he's oh yeah, oh yeah well obviously yeah <laughs> um even jesus you know he wait even died on a cross and somehow god turned that around the most right. the ridiculous and scandalous way to die mm-hmm. so yeah i mean yeah you have this recurring theme even in people's lives that yep. god seems to be playing 40 chess over and above our mistakes yeah really cool yeah, is cool. yeah but you're right so even it, even though there was this sad history of conquest and colonization within the church you still have this rich history and spiritual tradition that's been laid down mm-hmm. and it's really fascinating to see how in latin america it's kind of mixed in with their indigenous traditions as well it's really fascinating to see yeah yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really interesting but yeah <clears throat> so i mean where were we in our story so you were at the church you left there because of disagreements um and then you found yourself was it was this about the time you started coming to ca yeah so i um i started training as a spiritual director and i started training as a chaplain and i wanted somebody had given me an idea a couple of years before because I had started doing some online Bible studies through the church I was working for um, because people wanted a Bible study and nobody's schedule was meshing. And they were like, you could actually do with, you could make a thing out of this. Um, You could teach some classes and stuff. And I had had a class at seminary that was really life-changing, a spiritual formation class at seminary that was really life-changing. And so I was like, I would love to teach something like that. And they had shut my seminary down, so I couldn't teach at the seminary like I had hoped. So, um, so yeah, I just started kind of playing around with this idea, and I talked to the powers that were at Campus Ambassadors at the time, and they were like, well, you can... Um, you're not really doing a campus ministry, but it would be good for you to not just be kind of isolated all on your own so maybe you can come under our umbrella and so that's yeah so then I started coming to CA and the idea I think was to help um graduating college students get enfolded into some kind of Christian network even if they weren't in college anymore and weren't being actively encouraged to participate in church or go to campus ministry events or that kind of thing it didn't really play out that way because, and I didn't, I was willing to give it a shot, but I actually didn't think it was going to, because at this point, so not only have I worked in and lived in and experienced all these different streams of Christianity, but I've also um, worked with every age of human <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Um, at that point I had not yet worked with the elderly, but I have now. Um, but I was kind of moving from teenage, young adult up to more middle age, midlife. And 
I think that the parts of spirituality that interest me that I feel like I can work in well because they were kind of um because of how they were formative for me are like you have to have a little bit more life experience to really get the most out of them so I will do individual spiritual direction for people in their 20s if they want it um and anybody can take anybody over 18 can take one of my classes but I from experience, from what I've seen, um, you will get more out of them if you are 30 or over. <laughs> um, just because, not because you're so much, so immature or because you haven't lived life, but just because they're different, um, probably because of stages of faith related to what you go through in your life um the more you've gone through the more you're going to get out of the the courses that i offer i can definitely attest to the fact that once you leave college up until i mean i'm 29 now so i left college six or seven years ago a lot happens in that time <laughs> <laughs> i know that's crazy to think about because we met when i was still in college Yep. Maybe nine years ago now? Was it 2013, I think? No, it was 2015, 2015. Oh, that's when you started? Oh, I thought you were there earlier. Okay. No, some people think that. I don't know if that's good or bad, but... <laughs> well, I don't know. It's like you've always been there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's funny because you were only there like two years that I was there. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> that was cool. I mean, I always... I always thought you were a really cool person. Oh, it seems like you had I, you wise and I really something. enjoyed hanging out at Worcester State and like hanging out with you guys, but I was just like, I don't I just don't know if this is gonna like work the way the people whose idea was to put us together yeah. um thought and yeah, and I remember like when I did leave college, you started you kind of got me hooked up with the on pilgrimage like website or something or was a facebook group i forget what it was but it was something like oh yeah like these like bible studies or whatnot and eh, i don't know i think it was before the time of like zoom right when it wasn't really much of that yet. yeah there was zoom and i was learning about zoom during that time because i start so i started my um chaplaincy training in person at saint vincent hospital but then um i completed it you might already have graduated by then but i completed it in um online and we used zoom and so that was my first introduction to zoom and i've been using it for the pilgrimage ever since but yeah we weren't doing video meetups or anything like that at that, that time and then how did it turn into what it is now um so it well yeah that's a great question um let's see so the pilgrimage got started in 2015 and i was doing some stuff with you guys at campus ambassadors and i would do some of the like i would go on the um the retreats and stuff like that with you guys sometimes i would lead a talk or whatever but um 
most of what I was doing for the pilgrimage was sort of separate. And there were a lot of those online um, sort of static on your own time Bible study type things. And then I did start teaching my class, Stepping Into the Story. I think I started that in 2016. Um, anyway, I also got a job as a part-time hospice chaplain. Um, and so I was doing the pilgrimage part-time and hospice chaplain part-time and um, gradually shifting to less and less time on campus um, and more and more time with my online stuff, which was becoming fewer of like you guys. The starting to teach classes that made a difference. Um, then in 2018, my parents decided to move to Minnesota because my brother's family lives out there and he's got four kids and they were like, we want to be close to our grandkids while they're still young um, and still care about hanging out with their grandparents. So would you like to buy our house? So my husband and I bought their house and uh, we had been planning to relocate because the house we were living in in Auburn was super tiny um, like super tiny. And, but we thought we were going to move to New Hampshire. We were like, well, maybe we need to find something else to do here. So, um, and Paul said, maybe you can become the pastor at that nice little church in Southbridge where they had you guest preach that one time. And I was like, hun, they haven't asked me to guest preach for them in like two or three years. It was only that one time. I don't even know if they need a pastor. And then I got a phone call from one of their deacons saying, would you guys preach for us? <laughs> That's and weird. So, yep. So I did. And then that day, the same person said, would you consider applying? Because we're not really finding anybody through our denomination. Um, and I said, no way. I'm already... I'm doing two things. I like what I'm doing. I'm good. This is a tiny church that has like 19 people in it. I'm, I like them, but no. But then here's a way that God works with me. He'll like put these opportunities in front of me and I'll be like, I don't think so. And then they just won't go away. <laughs> so, so I doesn't give me much of a choice. Right. So I applied and said, like I told you at the beginning, on the condition that I not have to join the denomination, um, I would be happy to be the pastor of this congregation. Otherwise, I'm not really, I don't really care about being a pastor. Um, it was not a deal breaker. And so in January, first week of January 2019, I started pastoring there. I quit my job as a hospice chaplain, and by that time, the pilgrimage had, I was starting to feel like the differences in what we were doing between CA and, um, and the pilgrimage were different enough that what I was doing wasn't really a great fit, and it probably wasn't very well understood by CA. And so we couldn't help each other very well. 
So um, I found an, a local organization that also does spiritual formation work, the sanctuary at Woodville, and shifted over to them. They became my fiscal sponsors. And that's probably where the dynamic really started to change. This year I shifted again because they had some changes in their leadership. Not bad changes, but it was just, it got kind of... Um, crazy for them and for me. And so I thought, you know, it's time to, to move to somewhere else. Um, and so now I am a, an independent contractor with an organization called build a better us. They are a Christian coaching network and they have like a writing coach and a life coach and fitness coach. And now they have a spiritual director, which is me. Um, so I still have Pretty much autonomy over what the pilgrimage does but um they oversee the finances and they kind of make sure that i'm you know doing what i'm saying i'm doing and that kind of thing that's cool so, yeah so the pilgrimage is at this point now we are it's all online um i do individual spiritual direction sessions and we have Currently two courses that I teach. One's a 12-week course that's called Stepping Into the Story, where you kind of look back on your life and see um, where God was, but also maybe kind of notice pieces that needed care that um, that you can kind of care for now or wrap up or get some closure on or whatever needs to happen. That's pretty transformative. I've taught that 11 times. Um, so it's, it's a really effective class. People find it super helpful. And then the walk is the one on stages of faith. That's only eight weeks. And, um, I haven't had as many opportunities to teach that one, but, but that's gotten really good, um, feedback also. And we're also having a, um, a retreat coming up, an online retreat. It's our second annual on, it's super early this year because of how the year falls. It's really weird. Um, but it's January 6th through 8th. Um, starts Friday evening, ends Sunday afternoon. Um, it's really awesome. And it's actually a really good time if people are curious about the pilgrimage to kind of mm -hmm. get a taster of what the vibe is like. And, um, and you got some pretty cool speakers going, coming on that too. Yes. Yeah, a couple of them are returning. Actually, most of them are returning from last year. Um, pastor Trey is an elder and pastor in a church in Miami area. Um, he has a couple of podcasts and um, he's super influential in corners of Twitter. Um, mm -hmm. Lisa Colon DeLay is a spiritual director too. She also is working in a working on a nonprofit helping people in Puerto Rico. Um, she's Puerto Rican heritage. Um, she has written, she has written a book. She's got a couple other books in the works. Um, the book that I've read of hers is excellent. She has a podcast also. Um, Anna Rosas is also from Florida. She is training as a spiritual director. She's doing one of the workshops. Leah Wren is a musician. Gorgeous, gorgeous voice. I don't know what she's going to bring. I'm excited though to see what, what it is. 
So is um, she just bringing music? Yeah, but I think some of it's what she's written, and then mm -hmm. I think she's gonna lead the group and singing something together too. Um, over, over screens. Yeah, yeah, that's fun though. She she apparently has some experience doing this, so I was like, if you know how to do it, great. <laughs> um, it is really Smith, cool, man. Huh? It's crazy the time we're living in where we can kind of just connect from people with people all over the world, yes. and all over the country, just so easily. Yes. <laughs> Reverend Bernard Smith is actually somebody that I didn't meet online. He's um, he's in the denomination that my church is part of, and we've we met. We actually did meet online, but he's semi-local. Um, we've been kind of ministry brother and sister, encouraging each other since I started at Central Baptist, and he's going to do a workshop this year too. And Lisa Congo should be doing a workshop, but she's gonna um, she's gonna lead a game night for anybody who's super extroverted and still wants to spend time online after a whole day on Saturday <laughs> online. Nice. Um, she's also going to manage the, the breakout groups and all the Zoom stuff. Um, That's really cool. I mean, I'll be posting this probably tonight or tomorrow. So, I mean, if anybody listens and is interested, I'll also put that in the show notes. Why not? Great. Or yeah, even just get awesome. connected with the pilgrimage. I mean, the pilgrimage is really cool. The uh, whole organization you can also listen to jen's church as well speaking of your church a little bit i had a few questions like it seems like you have a pretty creative um i don't know approach to your liturgy or you know your the way you set up your church uh it seems like traditional but not but also not baptist but it's just like <laughs> it seems like you're drawing on a lot of a lot of streams and traditions within your your church service can you talk a little bit about that sure i can so some of it's me and some of it is them um the church has been in that spot a church has been in that spot since 1801 the building current building has been there since 1865 and they have actually if you visit i don't know if you notice this when you visit the church there's this big plaque behind not the pulpit but the lectern that has this list of all the pastors since probably 1865 um there's a lot of them and in the last well like in living memory even though all of the pastors until me have been American Baptist pastors, that's the denomination, um, the range of theology and where they're coming from and their approach has been different. And none of them have stayed long enough to make this like overarching legacy. So I think every pastor has probably brought their own style and then, in, but also inherited from whatever they were doing with the previous pastor. Um, I don't know which parts of the liturgy were which pastors when I got there. Um, but I, when I, when I worked at Starbucks, they had this phrase that they would say, don't move the cups. Basically that meant if you get transferred to a new store, especially as like a supervisor or a manager or something like that, don't go in and start changing all the little details right away because 
it's going to make your people mutiny. Um, like if the, if the people put the cups here and you feel like that's not good ergonomically, just deal with it. Leave them there for a while before you fight that battle. And so that's kind of been, for the most part, I have had a couple missteps in this area, but that's mostly been my approach. Um, I would say our liturgy looks different, pretty different now than it did when I got there, but we've, they always had the Lord's Prayer and they always had the Gloria Patri and they always had a call to worship. It was a little different than it is now, but, um, and they always had a responsive reading. And I actually thought about taking the responsive reading out this year because I've been there almost four years now. And um, somebody new, a new person was like, oh, I actually really like that part. <laughs> so so I was like, and I always, for our responsive readings, I always put in an extra scripture passage, which makes the sermon a little bit richer because I can draw on the main passage I'm preaching on. But then there's this other thing that we had in the service that people can look back at um, that I can draw on. And so it's been kind of this cooperative effort with what was there before when I got there and adapting it. And then also adding in some, we, it used to only be hymns with the piano or organ. And now we keep those, but we also have some more, slightly more contemporary, um, worship with guitars and drums and keyboard and stuff like that. And so it's kind of like a Frankenstein service because I, I don't, I can't tell if it's Catholic, if it's Episcopal, if it's Anglican, if it's Baptist, what's going on here, but I love it. I really like how it's unique for sure. Well, it's funny because we call ourselves the Island of Misfit Toys because all the people are about as, as quirky as the service. So yeah. yeah, but we love it. No, it's great. I love it. It was very cozy. I, I definitely want to visit again. I also liked the worship too. It was just very down to earth and the piano and the organ. That's why it's like, is, this is a Baptist church. This does not seem like a Baptist church. And I also really enjoyed the call to worship and the Lord's prayer. I feel like it, we take for granted the Lord's prayer so often. We never, it's meant to be prayed corporately, right? Like yeah. there's a lot of things that I'm just like, I feel like Jesus established some stuff that should be liturgy, you know? And by liturgy, yeah. I, for anybody who doesn't know what liturgy means, it just basically means the structure of the service, right? Yeah, I think literally it means work. <laughs> it's what what you do. Yeah, it's the work uh, of the service. It's, it's what yes. what to expect. That's right. The structure and every whether whether you call yourself liturgical or not, your your church has liturgy. Yes, that's correct. Um, you have, and you know, you go to like your classic evangelical church. It's like you show up. There's worship there's prayer, then there's the sermon, and then you go home. <laughs> but I kind of like how there's more participation, and you kind of break it up, and there's like, a, there's worship, and then there's different readings and stuff, and I really, I really liked it a lot. It's really cool. Good. Come again. Tell yeah, definitely. <laughs> Tell your friends. No, totally. <laughs> I highly recommend it. It's very, it's a very nice church, and um, I also think like, just having you as a preacher too is such a great asset to the church as well i think i'm sure a lot of the people really appreciate your preaching just because like you said you had such a rich 
history of different settings and places that you've been in. So it's like really neat. You've got a lot to draw on to preach and whatnot. I do. I, sometimes I feel like I talk like one of those detective boards where there's like this stickies everywhere in the lines and, the, <laughs> yeah. and people are like, what is she even talking about? I'm like, I'm sorry. It all connects in my head. I'm not <laughs> sure how to like get it out, but. <laughs> well, you're a woman pastor, so it is what it is. <laughs> wow. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> not at all. No, no, not at all. You are fully capable of preaching the gospel and expositing the scriptures and the tradition. Um, and you do it better than a lot of people, honestly. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I definitely do it differently, but I, I try to be, I guess I try to be authentic and approachable and I think you're creative too. And, yeah. and also like deep, rich theology as well. It's not, it's not like, and when I went that one day, I had no idea what apathetic and cataphatic meant. Apathetic meant. <laughs> I wasn't really sure, but then I had heard those, those phrases before. But then I heard you talking about it and kind of like, oh, what does that mean again? And I remember that I had to clarify when I talked to an Orthodox priest about it. Yeah, um, so yeah, it was really cool. So have there any have there been any really like neat experiences in your almost four years now? Would it be four years? Yeah, it would be, right? Well, I don't know if this is a neat experience, but it certainly was um, interesting with the whole COVID thing. Mm -hmm. um, there have been some really hard experiences in the four years because COVID happened and then we had a death, a very untimely death of one of our members who should not have been old enough to die. Um, sudden cancer diagnosis and very quick death followed on. And that was really hard. Um, but this year, we've welcomed 12 new members and baptized seven people. And um, our church is not, well, it's bigger than it was when we got there. There's We're between 35 and 40 most Sundays now instead of 19. So that's awesome. Um, but... We Southbridge, for anybody who doesn't know, is not a wealthy town, um, and most of the people in our church are not wealthy people, and we had a need for our kitchen to be redone. Um, somebody donated very generously at the beginning, but we it wasn't going to cover what we were going to need to do, so we decided to set up a capital fund and not even at the beginning of the year, like we were pretty decent way into the year, I think when we, when we started this. And I think people were like, how are we going to do this without fundraisers and all kinds of stuff, like reach this financial goal? Well, between the people in the church trusting God and being generous and people online who worship regularly, I think, that's where some of the gifts came from. Anyway, we reached our goal of $30,000 a month early um, to rehab this kitchen. So it's being worked on right now. And just seeing God do, oh yeah. And the church, when I got there, they said, we can offer you a contract for a year, but if 
we don't if things don't pick up by the end of 2019 um we're gonna have to close our doors so I was like okay well let's just see what happens <laughs> and that's awesome um, yeah and we're not in the red anymore and um you know we're not growing by leaps and bounds but but people are like we are growing a little bit numerically and people's lives are changing like people mm. are changing and that's just awesome to see yeah i mean it, I, I just feel like there is something deep and rich happening there for sure that mm-hmm. i definitely recognize and i also like how i don't know for me i think i get tired of the modern style of yeah. church and i get tired of the modern music as well and it's like it's kind of like this this um deprivation to the senses to just like and not to say that it's not it's boring or anything it's just that it's just different and it's very mm-hmm. analog it's not digital you know yeah <laughs> that's what it is Rich, i guess that's... i i may have an entire ministry online but i still like my analog <laughs> oh of course yeah i know this is just what we have to do in these this day right. and age and, and it makes life easier i don't have to come to your house you don't have to come to my house that's right yeah and i can talk to people in indiana and texas and exactly all right. in canada and philadelphia and all over the place uh-huh. which is really cool Me too. and i'm gonna be i think i'm gonna be talking to someone in uh, from europe as well pretty soon so yeah. yeah that'll be tough with the time zone the time changes or whatnot um, oh you can do it i had oh yeah that's one other thing the pilgrimage has we have an online bible study twice a month on Wednesday mm-hmm. mornings, not in December. Um, but one day we had somebody in California and somebody in the Netherlands all on the same call in that Bible study. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's what's so cool about technology. It's like, yeah. we really are connecting with people. And I, I have like this friend group of people from like texas atlanta tennessee michigan and we chat on a daily basis and we've never met each other but we talk talk online and we go on each other's podcasts and whatnot so it's like cool it's great it's super cool to make these connections with people all over um and to have this ability especially through social media i just message people and like hey you want to come on my podcast And they're like sure why not (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's great it's great yeah but yeah um that's super cool. I, I'm really glad that's working out. Honestly, I, I feel bad. I feel like I didn't even know that you were pastoring that church until maybe like a year ago, maybe a year and a <laughs> really? half ago. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> like I, I did not know. It's weird. That's all right. But, People lose touch. And when you have, this is the less good thing about having all these contacts on social media is all, like all over the place. You lose track of people. That's true. And even the people that are geographically closer to you, because if you don't, you don't interact have... with their page, yeah. the algorithm doesn't send them your That's way. Right. Then forget <laughs> it. Never gonna true. Know. Yeah. And I think I've always like on and off, like seen pilgrimage pop up and your Instagram or whatever pop up. Yeah. But still yeah. it's, and, and I used to get your emails every once in a while as well. Oh yeah. But yeah, that, that is crazy to think it's been almost four years now that you've been pastoring that church and I know. It's really cool. <laughs> I mean, crazy. but it's really cool. And I think what you're doing there is really great. <clears throat> and I'm excited to see what else happens. You know, me too. 
Yeah, it is. I think it is a breath of fresh air in a place where you wouldn't expect it for sure. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to like prop you up or anything, but I think, I mean, you're, you have a lot to do with it and your experience, what you bring to the table has a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. You're not just this, like, you're not this, this, uh, this hollow bag of propositional intellect, you know, <laughs> you're, you're, you're the sum of your experiences, which is really I fascinating. I might have used to be, but I, yeah, I can't. No. Maybe you had to start there. We all had to, maybe we all have yeah. to start there to some degree. Mm -hmm. For me, I had it the other way around where I had a lot of experiences, a lot of mystical experiences when I was young and mm -hmm. had to fill in the gaps intellectually. But I think that's why yeah. I'm here in a lot of ways. But it's different for everyone. Yeah, totally. But, um, I was curious now, now you, you were mentioning that aspect of, I know it's getting kind of late, but maybe we could talk briefly about um, abstract ideas um the you were mentioning a an explanation of the interaction between god's will and man's will that could be cohesive oh. <laughs> this this isn't actually um i don't know that this is a real explanation and this doesn't originate with me this comes from some openness theology people maybe whose works i haven't read i've just kind of heard about you talking um, are, you, are you talking about like open theism yes mm, so the only reason that this resonates with me is because i'm a writer and so even though my current book that i'm working on getting out into the world is nonfiction, my previous two books are novels and so i have had this experience where i will be writing a story and i know the end point and i know my characters pretty well and as i write them i get to know them better and better but sometimes the character will do or say something that I was not expecting. And I have to, I don't have to change my endpoint. Um, and I don't always even significantly have to change how they get to the end point, but I usually have to change something because the character did this thing. And I, to be true to that character and who I have written that character to be, they have to do that thing. Like, <laughs> um even though it wasn't something that i intended so it's almost like the characters take on a a life and a volition of their own and so that phenomenon has been used to kind of describe what happens with god's will and and human will intersecting i don't know that i fully I don't know that I fully ascribe to it, but I suspect there's a little bit of something like that. Well, you know, there has to be some truth to it. And I, I've kind of toyed with that idea as well. There's this aspect where, I mean, in kind of a Calvinist framework, it's like God is literally ordaining every single moment, every single action mm -hmm. that we do to yeah, the point where we're basically puppets, you know? <laughs> and, and even the most hyper-Calvinist will, will disagree with that weirdly enough even though they kind of see that there's some sort of compatibility between man's will and god's will but then it's like well where does god's will end and where does my will begin but then there's a story at the same time right there's a story happening yeah. there's a there's a story there's a narrative and um it's like god's the main character you know and we're in a sense um but at the same time we're the main characters you know, mm -hmm. it's like God in us. 
Um, and then you have Jesus in the incarnation that throws a monkey wrench and everything. And we are, we got to throw everything out and start over again. You know, <laughs> Jesus is, Jesus is man and he's God and, right. and he's connected himself to all of humanity. Um, well, this is a weird monkey wrench. Now we're all the main character along with God kind of plays into this conversation I've been having with one of my friends, Cal. He's really into this philosopher, weird guy, Christopher Langan. He's not a Christian, but he's kind of like come up with this theory of everything that the universe is God and, and everything within it is also a part of like, a, I don't, I, honestly, I'm, I'm going to butcher my explanation of it, but basically we're, we're God perceiving himself, perceiving God, perceiving himself, perceiving oh. God is like this weird interplay between humanity and God. It's really weird, but then, yeah, I mean, that's not have, really a new idea. What's that? That's not really that new of an idea. Yeah, I'd imagine not. Who said it first? I don't know. I don't know. I can't. It, it has a name. I forget what it is. I'll it's think not, of it not pantheism. Or the of the night or something. What's that? It's kind of, it's kind of probably has some similarities with pantheism or panentheism. Panentheism is, yeah, it's close. <clears throat> You'll wake up in the middle of the night and tell me. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, so. Anyway, yes, there seems to be this story happening on, and you know how we, like, we all have these like weird ticks and weird things that we do? You ever oh. think to yourself, like, does God, did God plan that I would do this kind of weird stuff? You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, like, there's all sorts of weird stuff that we all do, and when nobody's watching, and, and God, you have to think, I was thinking to myself, I was like, did God plan for this to be this way? Like, <laughs> probably not i mean he kind of created us to have this uniqueness to ourselves that's that's unique to us you know unique to our own will and desires within the bounds of his greater will and desires it's really interesting this interplay is something we can't really understand but but i find it fascinating that that you're willing to think outside the box in that way yeah Yeah. i don't have too much i mean i I do have some fairly strong convictions still, mm-hmm. but I feel like I don't hold them the same way. And I also mm-hmm. don't get as freaked out if other people don't have the same yeah. ones. Like, I may wish that they did, but I'm not going to spend, at this point in my life, to me, it seems like it's much more persuasive to just be who you are around people and Mm. let God do whatever transformation God wants to do and needs Mm. things he needs to do. And I I don't know what he needs to do. (laughs) Not for me to say (laughs) somebody else. I just need to cooperate with what God's trying to do in me. So, you know, I, I often think like there are, there is these, there do seem to be these diverse expressions of Christian tradition and spirituality all throughout history. Yep. And they all look slightly different. And you can even say like, even every, every individual's experience yeah. is different. Cool. You know, nobody has the same like conversion, quote unquote conversion story. Nobody has the same um, story at all. Like everybody's is different. So it's like, you can't really compare and contrast, but like, yeah, I mean, it's, it is really interesting. 
how it all works out. But but I guess there is this kind of like hope and and um, assurance and peace and and just the fact that God is working things out. Yeah. Despite despite our mess ups or whatever. Yeah. Right. Mm. That's cool. Yeah. So your so your new book. What's yes. it about? It is called Follower, How Getting Close to Jesus Brought Simon Peter to Himself. And it's about Simon Peter. Oh, Jesus. yeah. You kind of mentioned that earlier. That... Yeah. Um, and yeah, stages of faith. But it's not it's not particularly propositional. I come at it from a sort of narrative standpoint. Um, looking at the stories of Peter's interactions with Jesus and watching how he, what like, what really seems to be going on between them and how he changes and um, that kind of thing. Mm. So do you take every like mention of him throughout the gospels and kind of string it together in this narrative? And I don't tell, I don't take every single one, but I take most of the big ones like his call and um, going out with the 72 to, you know, to do what Jesus does and the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on the lake and transfiguration. Yeah. So interestingly, I didn't have a chapter on the transfiguration. Um, I didn't write a sermon on the transfiguration and I didn't write, I also, there was something else I didn't write a sermon about, which as I put the book together, I was like, oh, I really need to write about this. And so I wrote this other chapter. And then I was like, yep, the book's all set, but it's not long enough. <laughs> <laughs> and then somebody was talking to me about the transfiguration. And I was like, oh, I need to write about that. Yeah. That was the hardest chapter for me to write, <laughs> partly because it was the last one, but partly because I feel like I understand that episode the least well. Yeah. Do we any of us? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> And so I, that chapter also probably changed the most from the first draft to the third or fourth or whatever it ended mm. up being. Um, yeah, so we'll see. And so none of my, it was so recent in addition that none of my beta readers have read it. Um, so I have no idea if it fits in the book, mm. how it's going to, how it's going to flow with the rest of the book but we'll see. Was there any, like, was there any chapter that really stuck out that you, like, really feel like something really clicked and really shows a beautiful picture of Peter's journey? There were actually a bunch of them, but I'll say the chapter on his denial probably clicked the most for me, like, understanding why that happened kind of the way it did i don't think anymore that it's for the reasons we often think um the most fun chapter to write was the one on when he walks on water oh my word that was fun <laughs> it's probably one of the most fun to read too did you say anything about the part where peter's like getting so uh, I forget what the context is, but Peter's basically tells Jesus to depart from him because he's like yeah, not a holy man. That's in the first chapter. Oh, great. 
-hmm. I find I always found it interesting, and other theologians have noticed too. There's there's Jesus saying to well, there's Peter saying, "Depart from me," to Jesus because he recognizes how holy mm -hmm. Jesus is. But then you have Jesus saying, "Depart from me," when he's talking. But it seems to be in the context of talking to the religious Pharisees and whatnot. Mm. But I think it's really interesting. There's kind of like this this uh seems to be this connection between yeah. that phrase depart from me but it comes from the psalms right isn't there a psalm that says depart from me i mean probably there is <laughs> and there's that. a few where he says don't depart from me oh, yeah. I, so when let's see if you know this when peter says depart from me what is jesus response He's basically, don't worry, you're fine. <laughs> I, I forget exactly, but he says, Come follow me. Oh, okay. Come follow so, me. So so Peter thinks that the solution to his sinful his sin problem is to get away from Jesus. Mm. Jesus is like, no, nah, dude. You gotta you gotta get closer. Oh wow, that's really neat. And that's so often how we feel too, right? Like mm -hmm. yeah. I'm sinful. Um, but there's something about you know on the the beatitudes blessed are the poor in spirit and there's mm -hmm. kind of like this this aspect of not just talking about poverty but also the spiritual poverty of like recognizing mm -hmm. your own depravity mm -hmm. and blessed are the poor of spirit for theirs is the kingdom of god is that what it says i believe mm -hmm. yeah um so yeah it's like it's almost by peter recognizing his own depravity and his own unholiness Jesus, it made an in for Jesus. But if he if he was like, yes, I am holy, and he went, to, oh yeah, you know, I mean, well, that's why the Pharisees are have a problem. Exactly. At right. least mm -hmm. as a group, not all the Pharisees. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It isn't. It isn't all the Pharisees for sure. I often wonder what would what would have happened if Nicodemus just gave in and followed Jesus. Mm -hmm. Probably. Have you seen the Chosen? Mm -hmm. It's really cool that the episode, they, they kind of interpret the story of Nicodemus as he's like sitting there behind the wall and Jesus is like, you're so close. Yeah. Like he almost, he almost went to follow Jesus, but it was just too much social pressure to remain mm -hmm. with the religious establishment. Very fascinating interpretation. Yep. Makes you wonder. But anyway, I mean, do you have any, um, I don't want to take too much of your time. Do you have any closing thoughts? Um, no, I'm just honored to be asked to be on your show and um this has been fun and of course. Thanks, for, uh, thanks for sharing your experience come to winter solace retreat <laughs> yeah and also check out jen's book when it comes out that's right you can also check out her previous book that she wrote on on mary right yes so that one's a novel um it's called favored one and it is sort of it's not so much trying to figure out who the real mary was was or what she would have been like but more if i were mary how would i have responded or reacted to all the things that happened to jesus mm. around so were you trying to like ima imagine her thoughts and psyche like what was going on i wasn't trying to imagine hers i was trying to imagine myself as her oh, okay and there's a slight distinction <laughs> yeah yeah because yeah. i don't know what the real mary was like i don't know what her personality was like except that she was faithful to god and mm. accepted what god was gonna do in her which is what i've tried to do so i wrote i actually wrote that 
10 years before I published it. Um, wow. And so in a way, it's a spiritual memoir removed from like via another character. Um, so it's kind yeah. of a record of my own spiritual state at the time and my own spiritual journey and what it how I was becoming aware of um, my own role as a Christ bearer, a female Christ bearer. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's kind of this archetypal character of Mary where she's bearing the Christ and mm -hmm. we do too, and especially for yeah. women, you know, yeah. there's, there's another aspect of empowering women. Right. It was kind of a way for me to process that transformation mm. of my own thinking so you can say from experience that the holy spirit is still working through women oh yeah when they preach <laughs> love to hear it <laughs> <laughs> love to hear it that's great anyway thanks for having me on i'll, I'll share whatever websites and resources in the show notes and oh maybe i'll have you on another time to talk a little bit more about um maybe you can we can get dive more into your new book when it comes out and also um talk a little bit more about spiritual direction and spiritual formation. That'd be great. I'd love it. And the future of the church. I mean, that's something that I'm really curious about. Uh, yeah. Me too. <laughs> We're all curious, but we can all speculate. But I think that's, that's a big query of my own. Cause it's like every, the world's changing fast, you know, mm. and you don't wonder, it seems like the church always adapts in some ways, but it, but it also stands firm in other ways, you know, and, yeah. and, there seems to be these pillars throughout history. It's not yeah. the first time the world has been changing and the church has remained. Right. That's exactly right. Mm. Another another really easy question is, is is Mary ever was Mary ever virgin? Ever? Oh oh was, was she, she ever, ever virgin? virgin? I was she ever a virgin? No, no. I, no. I don't believe so. <laughs> you don't think so? <laughs> no. It's fascinating. I was talking to some people and they were saying that apparently Joseph was had been married before and he mm -hmm. was widowed his wife had died and she he had kids with her and that's where james came from and others came from i'm familiar with that theory yeah i don't particularly personally hold to it but could be true i don't know i don't know i was just curious what you thought because you did a lot of research into mary i imagine but i did yeah. do some and then in other ways not i just kind of did my own just reading the bible the mm. gospel passages but but i did do yeah. some i read um i did read a couple of books specifically about her so mm. so she had james and others probably i don't know that's just my you know they had a whole church council decision about it back in 553 <laughs> yeah and it's really interesting but we're protestants we don't care about councils <laughs> i'm just kidding um, well it was all men it was it was all men mary didn't have a say in this she didn't that's tell right. us that's and, right. and you know part of me wants to affirm mary's sexuality at the same time right right and like i, I want to because it almost seems like this prudent this prudence i hate to start another conversation but there seems to be this prudeness in saying that mary's ever virgin it's like what about her sexuality that's a big part of her being I think she had sex and enjoyed it and, and then had kids just like every woman do does too. and should, yep. or do doesn't too. have to, but like, there's nothing 
I don't think there's any. I mean, she already had a kid. It's like why not? Why not just keep going? <laughs> At that point, <laughs> like imagine being married and being like, "Dang, I didn't even have to have. I didn't even get to have sex. Right? And I had to have a kid. You're like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. I had to go through all that and not even <laughs> didn't even get to enjoy something of it. You know? Well, I on that note. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my thing. Why did they have a council to, to, to decide? Why did some men have a council to decide on her? Oh, my gosh. Like, because it was a debate. It was a debate at the time, right? Which is fascinating to think. They had to also, debate about it. Again. <laughs> but it's funny, like, the only the only historical document that actually expounds, expounds on this story that Joseph what had us had a previous wife and who was widowed and then though and then mary yeah. basically in, inherited those children um the only that's it's actually the gospel of james or something like that that was written in the early second century mm-hmm. and the church hasn't even accepted that document as scripture but then they <laughs> go on to say well mary was also ever virgin but i think i don't know i think i think i'm onto something when i say they were just trying to uh, say that sexuality was bad in this probably yes, semi-gnostic I suspect, sense. I, yes, I suspect that's true. I suspect it. Very interesting turn. On that note, <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a good night, Jen. Thank you so much. Lord, Lord, the nature of your wrath It's not an easy path But I'm willing to trust Though I'm dying in the dust